0: Heyo! Oh, that was good. Didn't even arrange that. Um, oh man, I feel like it's already just been such a rich morning. It feels like there's just so much to take away, um, which is a lovely, lovely place to start from. As Dave's already mentioned, we're in this series looking at the Christian mystics. Um, And for a lot of us, that will be quite a new thing, quite a kind of a new bit of ground um, to tread. I only discovered the mystics a few years ago. I felt like my spirituality, um, kind of as Dave talked about last week, was kind of classically um, kind of charismatic, evangelical, but where a lot of what I thought Christianity was about was kind of packaging some right statements together um, and having kind of experiences of God, but I kind of knew what they would be like. They'd be like kind of singing and feeling kind of a sense of the presence of God in worship, or they'd be like um, just... Like I, I, knew what I was talking about. So I could, if I could explain my faith, then that meant my faith was was really strong. Um, and a part of the reason, I think maybe the main reason why I love the mystics so much, is that um, at a point in my life, I guess a few, oh, I don't know how many years ago, it kind of happened so gradually. But at a point where a lot of the certainties around my faith started to kind of peel away at the edges, I, I got. I got really panicky about that. I was like, what does what does my faith look like that I've learned is about knowing things about God and about trusting things about God? What does this look like if I, if I don't have that, if I can't pin God down in a box anymore, if I don't quite know if I can adequately describe God? Not that I would have claimed to before, but do you know what I mean? As that kind of stuff started to fall away, I started to wonder can I can I have relationship with God then or do I just have to kind of end up at a kind of a a bit of a jaded kind of place where I'm like eh, I don't really know and because I don't really know I can't really have relationship And the thing that just so excites me about the mystics that I really hope comes across over the next few weeks is the mystics are a bunch of people who simultaneously seem to be saying two things. One is that God is completely unknowable. Like the, the, the more you get to know God, the less you know God, the less you can pin God down, the less you can say anything with any degree of kind of like, yes, this is the total answer of who God is. And so they were people who, in a sense, journeyed deeper and deeper into, um, it's called in one of the the kind of classic mystic texts, it's called the cloud of unknowing, kind of uses this idea. Do you remember when Moses goes up the mountain and he kind of hears from God? Moses doesn't go up and kind of go into this moment of clarity where all of God is laid bare. He goes into a dark cloud. And it's like the the nearer you get to God, the the less you know. They hold that over here. Oh, my ear just went. That's nice. I've been living with a blocked ear, and it's just, hallelujah. <laughs> if I start twitching, it's that. Not <laughs> um, they, they hold that unknowing, they hold that question, that kind of goodness knows what's going on with God, with this ability to somehow be incredibly intimate with God, to keep a love relationship with God. The mystics are some of the people who talk in the most kind of, love language, kind of almost marriage language in some contexts, about their relationship with God. God is simultaneously a complete mystery and closer than the closest person you've ever loved, closer than your own self to yourself. There's this mystery and the intimacy. And I think for me, that kind of saved me because I I really want, want relationship with God. I don't want, as more and more questions come up in my life, to feel like God moves further and further away. And the mystics seem to kind of say to me, actually, as God becomes more of a mystery, maybe that's because you're getting closer. Maybe that in some way is because you're experiencing more of God. I hope that makes sense. I wonder if, I feel like for us as a church then this feels quite important because we want to be a space that that is open to people with just a whole load of faith stories. And some of you might be coming and you might feel like you're at the kind of, you're, you're hanging on by a thread to any kind of a sense of, of faith. So then what does it feel like to sing worship songs, to sing about the love of God? Like, how do I engage with that? How do I do that? And I think, I think something in the mystics is like you can kind of, You can, you can still love and have this unknown. The two aren't separate. It's not just that you have to become jaded and kind of distant, does that make sense? With that in mind, it feels so, so good to be kind of beginning our journey through these kind of great, great teachers, um, starting with St. John of the Cross today. Um, And St. John of the Cross is a really, really cool guy. But basically, the way that he kind of, the way, that, the way that he reaches what he calls union with God isn't a way of understanding and just going from strength to strength to strength. And his faith just gets kind of clearer and happier and better. And he finds a kind of a really great church and they really teach him well. And then he goes to understand. His way of finding God is paradoxically a way downwards and a way through quite a lot of pain and quite a lot of unknowing and quite a lot of even despair at times. Can I tell you his story? Yes, Um, it's the correct answer. So I'm gonna tell his story. Here's how this is gonna work. For the next kind of 10 or 15 minutes, read into that what you will, I've made promises before. Um, I'm gonna tell a bit of the story of of John of the Cross's life and kind of what happens to him, his experience, um, which he comes to call the dark night. Ooh, it's not a film. Well, it is a film. It's not the same as the film. Very different. Um, But, um, and then what we're going to do is, for John, he, he loved to write poetry, and it's his poetry that I think kind of holds the best of his teaching, holds holds his teaching in a really clear way. Um, And so what we're going to end up doing is having 10 minutes just sitting with one of John of the Cross's poems, uh, and it's called The Dark Night. So I want to kind of prepare you for that now, because um, for some of you, that'll be like, yes, 10 minutes, and I just get to read a poem and just let it speak to me. And for others of you, you'll be like, can I just leave? Is that gonna? <laughs> it's gonna be a long time. I hate poetry, or something like that. Um, so I want to prepare you now. You will have to do some homework in a little bit. But firstly, um, I want to tell you about his life. Um, John of the Cross wasn't born with John. Well, he was born called John, but he wasn't born with John of the Cross as his surname, as you might probably guess. Um, he was born to a dad who had. Had come from a kind of wealthy family, um, uh, but his dad had fallen in love with his mum, who was from a very poor family, um, and so his dad's family thought, "Hey, that's awful," and completely disowned them both, plunging the family into a life of desperate poverty. Could start. Um, he was in. He was Spanish. He grew up in in Spain. <laughs> Honestly, can't get the staff these days, can he? Um, uh, but with his mum kind of tr- basically kind of traveling around trying to find work um, one of John's his his dad died when he was only two years old his one of his older brothers died a couple of years later than that and it was kind of him and his brother and his mum um, and they would travel around a bit and then there were these schools that would kind of be for poor children who would train the kids and they would teach them largely about religion and faith and so from an early age John was kind of in these contexts where he was hearing the stories of faith taught to him hearing the journeys of the, of the kind of the saints talk to him. Um, and kind of as he got a bit older, some of his teachers started to recognize, oh, this is a guy who's got, he's kind of perceptive, like he's kind of, he knows what he's talking about with this, with this stuff. And so he was encouraged to enter into like a life of devotion um, and to join a monastery. Um, and so he kind of gave his life over to God in in that kind of form of of joining a monastery. Um, And he was part of the Carmelite order. If that doesn't mean anything to you, doesn't really to me either. Except, this is where it gets quite fun. There was a reform happening in the Carmelite order at that time. Now, if you can imagine, um, you've got this kind of ancient order of, of monks and nuns, and they've been kind of living with practices of faith for a long time, kind of very basic, a lot of prayer, um, not very much kind of rich food, you know, kind of the kind of classic monk stuff. Um, but as Christians are just so, so good at, there were divisions opening up in the order, and particularly between what's called the, I think this is interesting. I'm just gonna carry on, because it is interesting. W- w- between the kind of the most of the Carmelite order and those who felt like, hey, we've become a bit soft recently, and we need a reform to kind of reset us back to the kind of hardline ways of our ancestors, and they were called the descalced Carmelites, which literally means unshoed. So those were like hardcore enough not to wear shoes. You know, if you wear shoes, you're soft get out. Um, but, but, but actually, Teresa of, of Avila, who we know as St. Teresa, and we're going to look at her in a few weeks, was one of those people. So she came to John, and she was like, hey, John, would you join my reform and help me kind of bring us back to a kind of higher level of purity, to a higher level of devotion to God? John was a young, passionate guy. Yeah, sure, let's do this. And so they kind of planted a couple of monasteries together, but the Shoe people did not like it. One little bit. And the people who wore shoes and were monks got very cross. And one day, they came and, in the middle of the night, kidnapped John and they took him away from his monastery, away from his kind of family, church family, and took him kind of across to another monastery and locked him in basically a converted cupboard. And this cupboard was, you know, like a couple of meters by one and a half meters, like really, really small. There were no comforts in it, no mattress, no blanket, hardly any food, and just one slit really high up in the wall where a little bit of light could come through. And he was there, they kidnapped him in December, and he was there for nine months in that room. And occasionally, they let him out for a bit of exercise, but as they did that, they would torment him, they would mock him, they would whip him, they would humiliate him and in that nine months understandably something in john just broke i mean as it would right like you can imagine what he what he found was that oh my ear went again rats um what he found was like he couldn't pray anymore like he he couldn't he just couldn't couldn't focus, couldn't feel the presence of God, if I put that in inverted commas, if that makes any sense. He couldn't kind of get any satisfaction from, from anything. He, he felt like the, like the church family that he'd given his life to, that as a kid basically saved his life and took him in, that church was now trying to basically kill him. And it led to this enormous crisis where it felt like he completely lost everything. And he called it a dark night. Understandably, he was in a dark room, like even in the heights of summer when the room was swelteringly hot, almost no daylight got into his space. And he started really, really interestingly, this kind of broken guy who's lost everything. And he felt like God was just missing from him. And he felt like, Where, what, 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 what is going on? What is going on? Like, I've given myself to this. What is going on? And he starts to write poetry. Like It's interesting kind of what comes out in that place of brokenness, isn't it? But for him, what started to happen, he didn't have a pen and paper, but he just started to write these verses of poetry and recite them and in his cell. And his jailers would start to hear it and be like, what the hell is going on here with this guy? Um, I'm just going to read a few to you now because this kind of paints a little bit of a picture. This is something he wrote in that jail cell. Um, so if I can have uh, my screen, John. He wrote this. Where have you hidden, beloved, and left me moaning? You fled like the stag after wounding me. I went out calling you, but you were gone. Shepherds, you who go up through the sheepfolds to the hill, if by chance you see him I love the most, tell him I'm sick, I suffer, and I die. Ah, who has the power to heal me? Now, holy, surrender yourself. Do not send me any more messengers. They cannot tell me what I must hear. Why, since you wounded this heart, don't you heal it? And why, since you stole it from me, do you leave it so and fail to carry off what you've stolen? Well, that's just a, a few of the kind of starting verses of this really, really long poem that he writes called The Spiritual Canticle. And it just talks of this darkness, this night, this absence of God. And this might seem like an odd place to kind of begin with the journey of the mystics. Like surely we should talk about some of the cool, you know, some of the cool stuff first. But I think this is so, ah, oh, just so beautifully genius is that for John, his journey doesn't start by succeeding and winning and climbing and getting higher and getting to God. It starts by kind of losing God, of losing meaning, of losing your sense of self, of losing your place in the world. In some way, I reckon probably all of us in this room can relate to that journey. I'm not saying that all of us have had a major faith crisis and lost... But all of us have had points in our life where the assumptions and the security and the, the safety and maybe the intimacy, where things have fallen away. And is God absent there or is God present there? And the amazing thing in John's story is that basically he hangs on in there. I mean, he's not got much choice, got nowhere to go. But in this cell, something starts to open up in him that's like a deeper awareness underneath all of that of the presence of God with him. Like, and it's not just like a one day he kind of, the feelings turn back on and he's like, yeah, God's back with me, hallelujah, I'm going to worship. It's like in the absence of feeling, he finds a way of resting in God's presence that in some ways even deeper, in some ways even more whole. In some way, he kind of in the absence of faith and in the absence of certainty and in the absence of safety and in the absence of comfort and pleasure and all this kind of stuff, bizarrely, he kind of just knows that God is there, intimately close and intimately present. Probably a lot of us know the kind of some of the stories of really early on in in the Bible, and one of one of the ones that I just love is that story of Jacob, who's this guy who in no way is a mystic, <laughs> like he's just he grows up and he's just got conflict with his brother and it's all ego and it's all how can I get ahead and how can I achieve and how can I and there's kind of probably a lot of inner fear going on there and of rejection issues and there was a lot of parenting stuff going on, but. But Jacob kind of gets to this point where he just becomes deceitful and he becomes this kind of um, just a hard guy to have a relationship with, I reckon. And it gets to a point where he basically has to run away from his family. His brother is so cross with him that he wants to kill him and he loses everything and he runs away. And we see Jacob in the desert in just this moment of abandonment and he's kind of, he's lost his family and he's moved away from what he would have thought of as like where his kind of family God was and all this kind of stuff. And he's just in the desert and he sleeps and he's got nothing and he uses a stone for a pillow. And in that night, in that kind of dark night for Jacob, he has a dream. And the dream is that in the exact place where he is, not somewhere just down the road, or somewhere up a bit of a higher mountain, or somewhere a little bit more holy. But in the place where he is, he gets this sense that, like, heaven and earth aren't different places. Like, God is here. And he wakes up, and he says this beautifully profound place, uh, beautifully profound thing. Surely God, God is in this place, and I didn't, I didn't realize it. Like, there's something about this journey There's something about this God, about this intimacy with God, that paradoxically might happen better, not happen better, might be better realized through our places of pain and through our places of brokenness and through our places where things fall apart than when we have it all together. I love that. I want to get to the poem really really soon, Um, but first I kind of want to just, oh, maybe just hang there for a bit. One of the guys that I've listened to um, a lot over the last few years is a chap called James Finley. Does anyone listen to the Turning to the Mystics podcast? Ant at the back. I know that already because actually we texted about it. Um, Okay. If you want to, like, okay, there's two reasons why you might listen to the Turning to the Mystics podcast. One is that you want to learn about the mystics. And the other is that you want to be soothed to sleep by the most gentle voice you've ever heard in your life. Um, And he's quite hard to kind of stay and listen to, is James Finley, because it'll be like, he's just so gentle and monotonic and like long. But um, James Finley for a long time has kind of been teaching about the mystics. And he he was like a young guy at the monastery where Thomas Merton was and um, studied under Merton for a bit um, and now kind of does his own thing. Um, But also as a young person, James Finley um, became an alcoholic, and it kind of came out of a lot of trauma for him, um, but he became addicted to alcohol. Um, and, uh, in re- and then he kind of was in recovery and is in recovery from that. But the way that he talks about his addiction is just really, really stuck with me. And I think it kind of links really into how John viewed this dark night thing that happened to him. The way that, John, uh, the way that James Finley talks about his recovery is that over time... The recovery was such an important journey of coming to know himself and of coming to know God and of coming to admit powerlessness and be in community. Such beautiful things came out of his recovery that he even began to say, and I, like I'm, I feel as someone who hasn't been through this, like wary of saying this because I feel like it kind of I don't want to belittle it, but it's him saying it, so it's not belittling it that he actually came to be almost grateful for the addiction that led him to that journey. Now, that sounds bizarre to me, and yet it makes more sense than anything else in the world, that the thing that broke him kind of led him to this recovery, led him to this new thing um, that came out of that. Richard Raw, talk, Richard Raw talks a lot about spirituality, not as climbing, but as falling. And John of the Cross, over time, he writes, he writes this poetry, and he starts to talk about this dark night of the soul, not as an enemy that got overcome when he finally met God again and everything became slightly less awful, but as a friend, like I needed the dark night to poke me underneath the stuff that I was just living in habitually. Like, in some way, I needed that journey to take me to somewhere um, a bit deeper. We, um, this beautiful piece of art behind us um, came from a project a couple of months ago, kind of at the start of the season of winter. We did this kind of thing together on darkness and engaging with the darkness and journeying into the darkness and seeing the darkness not as an enemy that we just have to hide from or ignore, but something to journey into and through. And we, there was this poem that was kind of the inspiration of it that I stupidly didn't write out, but I remember the beginning bit of it. Um, and it kind of say, it, it says this, it's by Wendell Berry. Um, to go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark, go without sight. And find that the darkness, ah, oh, then no, no, I lose it. Lydia, can you remember the rest? It's on that piece of paper at the back there, isn't it? Uh, but f- basically find that the darkness has this beauty and this life to offer of its own and, and is, fidden, is filled with this hidden beauty and stuff like that. I think John of the Cross would think like that. Um, we're going to read his poem together, and then I'm going to uh, let me just let me read you a couple of the verses because I want to show you this kind of thought progression in him. And then I'm going to give you each a poem. Um, and I have printed off a load of them. I think there'll be enough for one each. Um, so you can grab, there's some large print and some small print, depending on which you would rather. So if everyone could have one of those, um, we're literally, after I do this, we're going to have 10 minutes where we just sit with the poem. Now, I've got some pens here. So if you're a doodler, you want to scribble, you want to draw, if that helps you to engage, um, then do then do that. Um, if you would like to hear the poem read then that might just be something that helps you engage what I'd quite like is for there to be just like a bit of the room where you can go to and someone just reads the poem over and over again Um, but I haven't asked anyone to do that yet Bethan but I thought maybe you might be quite, would you like to do that? So if you go find a seat over there, Bethan is going to find a seat. And there's a few people congregate around her. So if you're not much of a reader and you don't like doing that and you just want to sit and hear it being read, then Bethan's going to read it over there. If you want to sub in for Bethan at any point and have mercy on her, then, um, then you can do that. But what I want to do is just trust this poem to teach us. Over time, it was John of the Cross's poems that became the thing that church was like, oh, there's spiritual wisdom and spiritual depth here. Now, I want to do a few things first before you kind of hop into it. Um, firstly, I want, you, I want to just draw your attention to a couple of the kind of verses in the middle um, where he says, he talks like this. He starts to talk about in verse, I think it's the third verse, on that glad night in secret. You get the sense of him kind of saying, this thing that happened. Now imagine looking back on that, nine months in solitary confinement in a cell. Who would ever describe that as a glad night? But the thing that's kind of awakening in him, he's so grateful for that he's even willing to say that. This light guided me, he says in the next verse, more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me. Him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. Oh, guiding night. O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. The other thing I want to kind of raise is that there might be some things that feel quite uncomfortable about this poem. And that could be for a number of different reasons. One is you might find the language that he goes on to use just quite disturbing, quite uncomfortable. He talks about resting, or resting his head on the bosom of the beloved and all this kind of very intimate relationship with god stuff. You might just find that really weird and really jarring. And that's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't feel like you have to force yourself into it. But equally, why? Why do you find that weird? Why do you find that? It might be a good opportunity to ask yourself some questions. If there's something that strikes you as kind of ugh about this, I wonder why that is. There might be something else that might happen, which is, I'm guessing, for a lot of us here, the experiences of darkness and kind of dark nightness for us aren't just like, oh, I had a few questions about my faith, but I kind of met God in a new way through it. It might be something that's still very traumatic and still very close to the surface for you. And I just want to kind of give you the space to, to go there or not as you want to as you read this poem. Like, you don't have to. And if, you, if, you, if it gets to the point where you're like, do you know what, I'm not, I can't do this right now, then it's totally fine to do something else, to go outside, to grab someone that you trust and say, listen, I, I need to talk about this or, or not do that. But just I want to kind of give you the space to journey through this as you can, as you will at the moment. Um, And then the other thing that's going to happen is the guys at the back are just going to kind of slowly rotate through um, the slides on the screen. That's kind of for the people watching this on the stream. Um, But also, if you just want to sit back in your chair and look and have a a verse presented to you for kind of 20 or 30 seconds at a time, um, then you can do that. So feel free to get up and move. If you want to go and find somewhere just to sit on a corner on the floor or come up here or whatever, like use the space as you want. Um, And if you want like a little group of people reading it and... <laughs> little poetry class over there. Then follow Bethan over to that side of the room. And we're going to start 10 minutes, and then we'll sing a song in place together. Is that okay? Go enjoy John of the Cross.